Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Daniel Wartman coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, Tuesday, October the 1st, in all time zones, in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this Tuesday morning. Coming up in a few minutes, we will be joined by Yael Averbush West. Really excited to have her back on the show. We're going to be talking women's soccer, the NWSL, the U.S. women's national team, and um, kind of these next chapters. But before we get into all of that with her, uh, news broke last night that the U.S. Soccer Federation filed a brief opposing certification of the players class action status late on Monday evening in the equal pay lawsuit involving members of the U.S. women's national team. The players first filed their lawsuit on March 8th of this year, alleging that the U.S. Soccer Federation violated the pay discrimination provisions of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by paying members of the U.S. men's national team more than those players on the U.S. women's national team. The suit is also alleging discriminatory working conditions in terms of travel and transportation, medical care, training and nutrition services, and quality of playing surface. I'd like to interject here and say all of which those claims are true. Good luck with that, U.S. soccer. The members of the men's national team have received superior and discriminatory treatment across the board with respect to each of these uniformly applied working conditions, the player stated in a recent filing. Now, I have heard uh, stories of behind the scenes where U.S. soccer's leadership have joked uh, about the fact that they're just, they're women. They should just be thankful that we've even provide programming for them this is the attitude that i have heard about at the upper levels of u.s soccer is it a surprise that the women are claiming these things no they've all been claiming them they can prove them u.s soccer on this front is for sure in trouble on september 9th the plaintiffs filed a motion requesting that the court certify that the court certify the players as a class. The motion requested that the court appoint Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Carly Lloyd, and Becky Sauerbrunn as class representatives. The class designation seeks to award the players injunctive relief for any player who is a team member on the day of final judgment or appeal as well as back pay and punitive damages for any player on the team at any time between February 4th, 2014 to the present. The only shame in this whole setup is that it is only going back that far. Because the the Federation this is not a short term problem. This is something that's been going on for a while. And um, and I, I think I think they're in trouble. Um, and I think I think U.S. soccer is is definitely in trouble.
when we look at our federation it just this is just yet another another, another situation where we have to recognize and acknowledge that our federation's leadership is off the mark our federation's leadership is completely unable to meet the challenges and the obligations required of being a national federation. The U.S. Soccer Federation has an opportunity to build and lead the greatest soccer country on earth. That is our potential. And that is our potential because of our resources, because of our demographics, and for all of the challenges of our geography and the size of our country. There are opportunities in those challenges that can help shape us to make us the greatest soccer country on earth. But that is going to require leadership. It is going to require the people in charge at the top levels of U.S. soccer to change their loyalties. We've talked about it on the show a lot. Their worldview is shaped by certain principles. One of the things that they hold dear is that MLS must succeed no matter what. That should be our primary concern. Doing business with Major League Soccer to support the league through Soccer United Marketing, a company owned by Major League Soccer owner-operators, is a priority. And all of these things happen to enrich those people at the expense of everyone else. To grow MLS is not to grow soccer in this country. It is to grow MLS. Now, they don't mind growth in this country, but only if it comes through Major League Soccer. Don Garber is on record saying every dollar spent on soccer in this country that does not go through MLS is a dollar lost. This is their mentality. They want to own and control and profit and leverage every sector, every place in American soccer. They want their hands on it. They want to control the whole enchilada. Now, I don't have a problem with that being Don Garber and MLS's view, their vision. That's fine. If you want to grow and you want to invest and you want to get your hands into every pocket in this country when it comes to soccer and connect the system and do all these different things and, and earn money off of it, and, and that's, that's your mission, fine. 
My problem is that they have engrafted themselves. They have woven themselves into the leadership of U.S. soccer and our federation that should be a governing body for all of American soccer, looking out for everyone in American soccer is and has been corrupted by this unholy alliance with Major League Soccer through Soccer United Marketing, giving them an unfair market advantage and de facto control over the federation, which then means that no one else has a fair and equitable shot at making themselves a success. Kudos to the U.S. Women's National Team. Keep fighting that fight. It needs to happen. Speaking of things that need to happen, yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law the the pay-to-play college athlete act, or don't have the exact... Uh, title of the law, but basically it's a California law. It's a state law. It's not a national law. It's a state law that allows schools, allows players, athletes at schools to earn revenue. It's something long overdue. And like the U.S. Soccer Federation, the NCAA is freaking out. Guess what's coming? More states. This genie is not getting back in the bottle. Just wait and see. And it's about time. It's about time. Later in the show, I want to get back to some things that we can do on our way out of the show today to to make progress in this country because it is clear the U.S. Soccer Federation is going to fight against progress, fight against reform, fight against what is right. And it's going to take outside external forces to fix this mess because it it is clear it is not going to come from Carlos Cordero and the leadership with U.S. soccer. And all of you who are out there, including on the Athlete Council, including in state associations, who listen to the leadership at U.S. soccer and you you believe the words coming out of their mouth, you've got to start looking at actions. What is actually happening? They are fighting reform. They are fighting progress and they are fighting those who want representation and equal access and opportunity for all. That is what they are doing. And when you go along with it, you are enabling the continuance of poor leadership. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. And there you can find all kinds of stuff, including their player journals at ductickbrand.com. And when you place an order, use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. Again, that is DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. Thanks for watching the show this morning. We will be right back with Yael Averbush West.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in today, and I am really excited to have joining us back again for another appearance on the show. Yael Averbush West, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks so much. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I am doing well. Um, really enjoyed our, our conversation last time and uh, wanted to uh, bring you back on to have a chat about the NWSL. I, uh, I think it's a league that a lot of people have been looking more at since the uh, Women's World Cup concluded this this summer uh, with uh, a, a victory, as we all know, for our, our U.S. Women's National Team. And um, I wanted to kind of look at the league and, and also the U.S. Women's National Team program as a whole uh, and, and kind of you know, get your thoughts on where we are and, and where we're going or where we can go, I guess, uh, might be a better, better, uh, question to look at. So, um, first things first, picking up on the, the culmination of the women's world cup, a lot of chatter, a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz about, uh, our, our women's national team winning another world cup in uh, pretty dominating fashion. Uh, what were your thoughts as you watched that, that world cup play out and what have you sensed around the country, uh, since that victory? Well, I think I and a lot of us um, watching from all around the world were so thoroughly entertained by the World Cup. I mean, from, you know, every single team, there was there were great stories and we got to know players who we hadn't seen before. We saw some players we did know emerge as stars. Others kind of fall short a little bit. It was the, the drama you would hope for and expect in a, in a tournament like the World Cup. And then I think um, for me, the, the real question mark surrounding the U.S. women's national team was will they be firing on all cylinders and will they perform to what we know they're capable of? And they absolutely did. So I think in so many ways it played out really perfectly for the women's game as a whole. And then especially when we're looking at, you know, women's soccer in our country, we've historically been this dynasty and we've kind of established ourselves as the front runners in the women's game. And I think this just solidified it even further. So we see all that excitement that was going into watching the tournament and then people could continue that after in the celebrations in the U S have you ever seen a team in any sport be as good as this women's national team in talking the talk and being a front runner and backing it up? You know what? That's funny because it's it's risky when you you know when you make bold statements like like the team has done. It's always a risky thing, and I I think I actually tweeted at one point during the tournament like, has there ever been a team to so dominantly win a major tournament like like this World Cup? Because I mean I don't know the ins and outs of every year of the history of soccer, but I couldn't imagine that there'd been a team that had so dominantly won a world cup ever. And a few people had some responses, actually forget what people had said, but there were some responses that were said, fair enough, fair enough. But you know, it's rare. I think that's that a group of athletes is so dominant and so confident in that they're going to be dominant, that they let everyone know and that they still do it. And so I, I think it was a pleasure to watch because I certainly know having played with and against those players that they're capable of what they showed, but then there's, there's another level to be able to actually execute that. Yeah. I thought that was impressive. Um, you know, the, the way that they, they, just handled the, the spotlight and the bright lights and they encouraged it. They didn't shy away from it. They didn't downplay it. 
Um, they certainly didn't do a, a Bill Belichick style of interview before or after matches. They were they were bold. They were brash. They were like, yeah, we're going to win. And, you know, we don't really care about the fact that there's more pressure or conversation about what we're doing or how we're doing it. We invite that pressure. And for them to continue to rise to the challenge, uh, I, I just thought it was a really, really impressive, risky, as you pointed out, but impressive that they pulled it off. Um, speaking of, of the women's national team, I want to get back to that. Uh, it, we, got, we got a new manager, new, new head coach that's got to uh, come in with Jill Ellis uh, stepping down. And I want to get back to, to the whole, whole women's national team uh, subject in a minute. But uh, picking up kind of, you know, the timeline-wise that that World Cup finishes and then we get right back into, you know, all eyes on, okay, Okay, what's going on in domestic soccer for for our, our women, and uh, that league primarily being the NWSL from 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 a professional standpoint? When we look at the league, um, nine teams uh, with the breakers having folded uh, in, in the last couple of years. Where are we at right now as a league? Uh, and in terms of in 2019, are, is the league in a really good place? Do you think it's in a in a um, you know risky place? Is it stable? What are your assessments of the league uh, coming off of this World Cup? Yes, you know I get that question a lot, and my very short answer is all of the above. And I think that you know. It's a really interesting question because people always say this, like, is the league doing really well or is it not doing well at all? And there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of these questions and and varying viewpoints all throughout the media. And I think that that that's that actually encapsulates what's going on is that this is still a very new league. And if you look at, you know, the history of soccer in our country, not just the women's game, we're still new to this. So we're looking at you know, if we compare ourselves to other countries and the the deep culture they have of the of you know having the professional game going on and that being the place where players are grown and developed and and bought and sold and just the way it works in other countries, we're really new to that. And on the women's side, even more so. And as we know, we've had a couple attempts at leagues that haven't worked out. So I think there's always this. Um, we're very nervous as a soccer community about the women's league because we know that. It can go away just as easily as it cropped up. That being said, um, we're we're seven years in, nearly completing our seventh year of of the league, and um, numbers have gone up every season. You know, going into a seventh year in and of itself is a huge victory. We've had two leagues in the past that only lasted three years each. So the fact that we're in our seventh year and we're seeing attendance records being set and so many positive things going on throughout the league. I think the league is in a really good place, but at the same time, that doesn't mean it's smooth sailing and everything is great. There are always things that need to be made better. It is hopefully the very early stages of something that we'll look back on 10, 20, 30 years from now and say, whoa, remember when NWSL was just nine teams and these were the kind of stadiums where the players were playing and this is how it was set up and these were the salaries. And now we can look back and say, you know, oh, we've come so far. So I think the answer is that it's doing great 
but at the same time, it needs to be doing so much better. And that's a process that can't be rushed. And that was the whole point. And the way NWSL was founded was with the focus on sustainability, first and foremost. It wasn't, can we get salaries up as quickly as we can? Can we play in the biggest and nicest stadiums? Can we get as many teams as possible? Those things will all happen with time. The, the main goal was, can we be here seven years from now, 10, 15, 20 years from now? And so I think we're seeing that play out in a really positive, hopeful way, but there's an incredible amount of work to be done to, to make that reality. When looking at a league, and no matter whether it's the NWSL or it's La Liga in Spain, it, you know, I'm, this is not specific to just the NWSL. One of the biggest factors in terms of being able to operate a league and operate a team in a league are expenses. And those expenses, uh, you know, you have a lot to do with player salaries, but also travel. Having only nine teams and them, you know, being, you know, spread out around the country, does that make it a little bit more difficult with only having nine teams versus if, if, we could concentrate some teams in in more proximity to some of the current nine teams and lower some of the operating costs, but still be able to expand the footprint. Is, do you think any of that is is being looked at in terms of ways to continue to build and grow the league? Yeah, you know, it's it's all that's always part of the conversation. Is you know eventually as the league expands, could there be kind of more regional uh, regional type um, divisions or something like that and then playoffs between them you know I think that's looking really long term and if I'm being totally honest in my opinion and this is all my opinion because I'm not an ex I haven't seen the travel budgets I haven't you know I haven't looked at budgets and what the discrepancy would be and how it would change if there were more local games so this is all just my kind of presumptions based on seeing the situation unfold I think the real thing here is that Budgets are being kept fairly low, even with the challenge of having to travel pretty far for the nine teams spread out throughout the country. I think it really has to do with um, the league as a whole and the individual teams being able to market themselves more and better uh, for people, investors, ownership groups, seeing this as more of an opportunity than it's been seen in the past to get involved. Um, you know, I, pl I played in Sweden and we had four easily 14 logos all over our jersey and shorts and this was a community effort to sponsor the teams and i think right now there are so many um so many opportunities that are still out there for teams to get corporate sponsors for the league to get more sponsorship you know we saw um budweiser and espn come on board following the world cup right at the end of the world cup and th these partnerships have been huge so imagine you know five or six more companies like that uh, on board with the women's league and then you see teams starting to sell out stadiums and, and with ticket sales going up those kind of things you know a, a few games of sold, a few sold out games easily uh, i would say covers the cost of any extra travel um you know travel expenses and that again is without me having seen the actual budgets but i would say the avenue here is not to cut back more on expenses but more so to bring in more revenue and i think that the w women's national team is a perfect example of how that can be done and how marketable these athletes are and how much people want to get behind them if they're given the opportunity and if the word is out there so looking at the league um if you're you know a 11, 12, 13 year old girl and, and you aspire to, to play in the NWSL, 
what uh, you know? What do you think the look the league looks like for them uh, in you know five years, six years, seven years down the road? Do, do you see um, the league being able to expand it into some other markets, other cities? Do you see the salaries or the base salary levels over the next five, six, seven years having an opportunity to to grow as well? Yeah, see, I always when I when I talk to younger players, and I have this conversation a lot with players, really young players, you know, six, seven, eight year olds, all the way through uh, college players who say they want to play professionally. And I think the reality of the professional game is that those players have to understand that even when they reach that level, um, if and when they get there and they sign a professional contract. It's not going to be what we think of as a professional athlete experience, meaning what we think of as, you know, the NBA experience, uh, the NFL. We're not going to be there just yet. I think a good model for us to look to follow would be something like MLS. And even in really recent years, you know, we see MLS's minimum salary going up and everybody's shocked by how low the minimum salary was. And that's just the reality of how long it takes to build a league and how those things happen over time. So, uh, I would love to say that, you know, a, a 12 or 13 year old right now has a dream of playing a professional player. Well, one day, you know, when it's their time, sign a million dollars, multi-million dollar deal and be playing in, you know, packed 80,000 person stadiums. It's just, that's just not the reality. Do I hope that there are continually teams being added to the league, which I think there will be solely over time. Obviously, you have to make sure that you, the, the league does it in a smart way and you don't just expand past the capability to, to make sure things are managed well and there are certain standards upheld. Um, so I certainly think there will be more opportunities, meaning more teams. The salaries will go up over time as the ownership groups are bringing in more money and there's more money to be shared in. Um, the, the standards and all of that will get better, but this is it's going to be a slow process. So I think that, you know, when I was... I, I always laugh because, you know, when I go do player appearances and stuff with young kids, they say, oh, so you're a professional player. Do you live in a mansion? <laughs> I'm thinking, you guys have no idea. But so I think it's, you know, it's going to be the reality for a while that it's it's a grind and it's um it's a passion project for these players. And they're part of building something that hopefully one day we'll look back on and say, wow, these these young guys are lucky with, you know, the situations they're in. But I think it will take even longer than looking at, you know, the, the career trajectory of a young teenager. Now they will probably enter a league that is, isn't too, too much different than what we see now. Although our hopes are that it, you know, it will have improved significantly by that time. Speaking of revenue, uh, the English FA, I think they announced some somewhere around 75 million pounds being invested into the, uh, women's league there in the UK. Um, how do we get the NWSL to a place where it can capitalize on the greatest uh, women's national team and, and women's national team program on the face of the planet to be able to look at something similar? to you know a 75 million dollar uh, investment in in the league. Yes, you know, it's we we've kind of um, gone the opposite route of how it works in a lot of places. Meaning, well, in a few ways, but primarily, what I was talking about is that U.S. soccer um, invested a lot to get the league going. U.S. soccer pays the national team 
players' salaries to participate in the league. And they actually have been the managing, the majority managing partner of the league. So they not only invested money, but actually have been managing the league up until now. Whereas usually that that that's not commonplace in other countries. And I I think when we're seeing other countries spending impressive amounts of money in the women's game, a lot of it um, outside of of what you just mentioned is coming from clubs who have huge amounts of money that just doesn't exist in soccer in the U S right now. You know, you look at a Bayern Munich, a Juventus, um, Manchester city, these, these clubs are investing in women's teams. And I can imagine if you just broke down the percentages of what they're investing to run a, a really, um, good high level women's team, you know, I'm thinking Barcelona, the, 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 it's always getting added to this list of European, um, uh, clubs investing in the women's game. I bet if you broke down the percentage of what they invest in the women's side compared to what they bring in on the men's, it's like almost nothing. Uh, would it be great to one day have it set up here in our country where, you know, MLS teams are bringing in so much money that it would be a similar setup? Yeah, that would be awesome. Would it be great if our, you know, if U.S. soccer could throw tons of money into this? Yes, but I think that I think that our approach right now is a correct one, and that is to grow it um, a little bit more organically and slowly because we've seen in the past that in our country, and this could be a cultural thing, could have been the way it was done before, but it doesn't work to just, you know, necessarily throw money at something unless there's a very strategic plan and it's being done properly. And I think that's the most important thing is that money certainly solves a lot of problems, but even more so than money, what I think our league needs is that strategy and to keep chipping away diligently at that strategy. It's almost like what you would tell a player who wants to be, you know, a top level player is that, yeah, all the talent, all the money can do just, you know, can do only so much. And it's what you do with it every single day and being diligent and disciplined to stay the course and stick out your plan that will really get you there in the end. So I think Yes. Would it be wonderful if we had a, you know, multi, multi millions of dollars being thrown into the league? Of course. But even more so, I think we need to stay the course and be smart about the plan. Speaking of the plan or strategy, what do you think is the plan? And what do you think the plan needs to be in order to see, you know, positive growth and positive steps being taken with the NWSL over the next, say, five, six, seven, ten 10 years? You know, if, if I knew that, I would, I would certainly share it uh, very publicly. Um, I don't know. And, and this is where I think, you know, it's going to take all... I think that something wonderful we have in our country is we have a lot of of diverse soccer minds who can bring a lot of quality to these kinds of conversations, well above the thinking that I'm able to offer here. So my hope is that as a country, we're able to harness the great thinkers and the people who care deeply about the women's game and have uh, varying opinions and different types of thoughts and to allow that debate to flourish and thrive and then for somebody to really take it forward and dictate that direction. And, you know, we haven't, the, the league has not had a commissioner, a person with a title commissioner now in a number of years. And I think it's really important that there is a, a person with a title commissioner and that person can employ a full front office to carry out, out this plan. And, um, I'm certainly not qualified to to be the one to make the plan, but I think that once there's something in place that's a little more public and there there's more staff that can buy into it, then things can fall into place and people can support that vision. Right now, um, 
it it hasn't been very clear to us pretty closely involved and the wider public what the exact plan and the mission is. And I think those things need to be clarified and need and and then people will get behind it. So um, what are the names that you mentioned? And one, it's one of the names that has been mentioned with the NWSL is FC Barcelona. They are my favorite club in the world. And uh, so I, I keep an eye on this space in terms of their conversations with the NWSL to put a women's team in the league. And I was reading um, a few months ago about one of the sticking points is uh, FC Barcelona's basically, you know, protection of their brand and their, you know, uh, sponsor deals, uh, kit deals, etc. Uh, they are, uh, if you pay any attention to, to Barcelona, you know that they are tightly knit with, uh, with Nike. And, um, you know, when you get into a, a single entity set up like the NWSL as well as MLS, um, if, if the league so chose to go with a um, different, uh, you know, apparel uh, brand for the for the entire league that was not named Nike. Uh, it would it would cause a, a major problem for for FC Barcelona in their uh, contracts with Nike, uh, and it seems to be one of the big sticking points as to why they haven't uh, been able to execute on launching a women's team in the NWSL. Do you see going forward? Um, some alterations to some of the operating agreements or or conversations, discussions um, with the current nine teams as well as future teams in terms of how they handle those situations to be able to uh, you know see something like an FC Barcelona have a, an American-based uh, women's professional team in the NWSL. Yeah, so this is where I don't have too much insider information here um, in terms of how exactly decisions like that are made and what could happen moving forward with it. I think we will see changes in how the league is run and managed because U.S. soccer's contract to be the managing partner um, is up at the end of this year. So if that contract is not renewed, then... Um, the ownership groups will have to decide how the league is run and managed and who does that and, and how everything is put into place. And that might be different than it is now. So I think it's it's certainly an interesting and complex issue because just like you said, I would love to see a club like FC Barcelona in the league. And I think a lot of people would be very excited about that. But at the same time, I always know now, I, I would say I've learned enough to know that, know how much I don't understand about the business operations of the league and how complex it is and how something like that may have some, uh, some other consequences that we can't foresee. So I would say that it, it would be ideal for for teams for us to be able to leverage um, you know partnerships like that and bring in teams, uh, but at the same time, and there's always the balance, and there's maintaining the the ability to form partnerships like the the Nike partnership and things like that, and to be able to say you know all teams will will follow this model. So it's a it's a really tough thing, and I think you know it, that would probably summarize how I feel about about this league is that the more I learn about the league, the more I realize I don't truly understand and I would like to, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's always that balance of you want to open it up and for more 
clubs to be able to be involved, especially a name like FC Barcelona. But then, um, you know, it's about managing the clubs who are already here and making sure that the partnerships that have been formed can continue into the future. Speaking of uh, something you brought up, the managing uh, agreement for the NWSL between the NWSL and U.S. soccer, there was a lot of uh, uh, speculation that Sunil Gulati was the kind of de facto commissioner for the last uh, several years uh, while he was president of U.S. soccer. Um, he is he is no longer the, the president of U.S. soccer, as you know, um, and, and now this agreement's winding down with the end of 2019. Looking at 2020 and beyond, what are your thoughts on the managing agreement? Should the NWSL look to... Um, I, I say break away from U.S. soccer. I don't mean it like in this catastrophic, cataclysmic, you know, apocalyptic decision, but more so from the fact of like having their own, you know, central office, their own commissioner, um, internal uh, leadership guiding day-to-day decisions and operations. Do you think it's time for the league? Is it a, is it at a stable enough place for the league to kind of take that that management on for itself? Or do you think, hey, we need we need to seriously consider extending this management agreement with U.S. Soccer at least another year or two uh, into the future? You know, the way I see it, I think it's, I would hope this would be a mutual decision from both parties, but it's kind of like, um, for lack of a better analogy, it's almost like sending a kid off to college. I think the intention was always that U.S. soccer would get this up and running and be invested to make sure it succeeds, but there would be a point in time in which it's only right and it's necessary to pass it off and allow someone else to manage it. And I think we're reaching that time where it's in both parties' best interests to move forward. And I, um, U.S. soccer, I think, will still will still be offering funding and things like that. So that's why I say the kid going off to college, it's like you're on your own, but you kind of still got the support of your parents. And I think that's the the best thing for some type of um, a transition process. It will be a transition, certainly. But I think it's really important that the league now steps up and has that autonomy and, and people who are just focused on the growth and the health of the league. And U.S. soccer has had, you know, there wouldn't be a league if it wasn't for U.S. soccer and for them getting it up and running. But now is a natural time for it to be passed off and for it to be in in new hands to manage it and take it forward from here on out. So as we look at the NWSL, what are some some areas that that you think we need to address or improve to grow the game beyond where it is today to take it to to a level where it could become globally a powerhouse on in the women's game globally like the premier league what are you, what are some things that need to happen in order for that opportunity or that possibility to be realized yeah, I think I think it's going to be a long-term process. But for me, one of the most important things, and I mean, there, there could be a long list here because obviously a lot needs to happen for, for the league to be viewed in that light. Um, a huge piece of this has to do with the stability and lifestyle of the players. And that's something I, I'm actually focused on a great deal in my role in terms of getting the Players Association up and running and my work 
on that front, a lot of my focus has to do with how can we create more stability surrounding the player experience so that players have a life where they can stay where their team is year round, where they can connect with the communities there and get second sources of income and work opportunities, not only to connect and hopefully inspire people to come watch them play on the weekend or, you know, midweek, if whenever the games are, but also to create second sources of income so that their lives aren't so reliant upon and so dependent on the league salaries going up quickly and drastically. We're hoping with that, that salaries continue to go up at a steady pace, but can we um, can we help the players to create that stability alongside the league parallel to their playing careers as well? And by having players more tied to their clubs, you know, we have these players who we think of as, you know, outside of the U.S. women's national team players, we think of as um, kind of you know, benchmarks of a club. You, you think of Rain FC, I think of a Beverly Goble, a Lauren Barnes, I think of um, Houston Dash, I think of Kalia Ojai, Amber Brooks. And, and there are these groups of players that are cropping up now in the league, but can we get to the point where every club team has these uh, household names and they're known not as, uh, oh, this is a, an English national team player, you know, Rachel Daly, it's an English national team player. No, that's a Houston Dash player. Can we know, um, can we know Megan Rapino as a Rain FC player? Can, you know, we think of Chicago uh, Red Stars, we have like a Danielle Colaprico. These are, these are names now that have been with their club. They're like in, in, integral parts of their club. The more players we can have who the fans can connect with and we think of as first and foremost as being connected with their club, the better. So as hopefully there, there are more teams come into the league and our national team players and all of the international players gain more visibility and they first and foremost be known for their club affiliation. And that's really the model that, you know, everywhere in Europe goes by. And that's, that's where true stability will come from. I think when players are known for being, for representing their clubs and where their main source of income and life stability comes from the club they represent and that's where they build their life. And right now that's not the case. When most players are moving every six months in, in and out of season, they live different places. They're moving from club to club. Some, you know, we have players who almost play for a different club every single year. And that's really stressful on the players that shortens the, the lifespan of the professional athlete's career because it's just so stressful and you can't continue to develop consistently. And then it also doesn't help the clubs either, because like I said, you know, you want a fan base who knows a, a Tori Houston as a Washington spirit player and is going to watch Tori Houston because she's been there since day one. And, I think that we're starting to, to see it in bits and pieces, but that's really a major change that I think can help the league get to the next level in a lot of ways. So the, the, the league has an opportunity, in my view, to become a powerhouse um, if they make the right strategic uh, decisions and and really build off of not just this world cup but but our standing in the world in the women's game um you know we can't make the same uh remarks about uh the men's side and we're gonna we're, we're not even gonna go down that path today because we we certainly don't have enough time and and uh and 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 not really the point of today's uh conversation either um but when we look at the women's game at large one of the the big glaring holes 
holes uh, that that's now um, got to be feel, filled is the the next manager, the next head coach uh, of the U.S. Women's National Team, Jill Ellis, stepping down. Um, there was a, a report the other day that they were the the federation was interested in speaking with uh, the manager for the uh, Arsenal. Uh, uh, women's team and uh, supposedly those those talks were shut down by Arsenal um, and and I don't know if that's going to get picked back up or not. Um, when we look at kind of the this next chapter for the women's national team um, with with a head coach, um, I'm not going to ask you to name names, uh, but in terms of the type of philosophy, playing philosophy, coach, uh, what would you hope that this women's national team would be be looking at from a program standpoint of taking the, you know, turning the page, uh, entering a new chapter as a program? What, what playing philosophy, what style would you hope that the Federation looks to employ um, with our, with our next women's national team coach? Okay, well, I have to start off by by pointing out that this is a really tough position to come into right now. Um, coming off the back of two two consecutive World Cup victories, I mean, that's a tough, a tough, tough place to come in as a coach. But obviously, an incredible opportunity for someone. And the the really interesting dynamic here is that we have such a history of success, and so to me. This needs whoever takes this position next needs to build off of that history of success and make sure to at all costs protect what makes our team special. And there are some really common themes that uh, you know that that make our team special: the competitiveness within, the attention to detail, covering all the bases, the thriving in pressure situations, the individual. Um, with the individual dominance on the field, athletically, technically, the, the players' abilities to dominate their 1v1 battles. I mean, there's so many things we could throw in that category, but taking really the core of what's made this team special since the very beginning of women's soccer and still today, but then at the same time, making sure that we're staying ahead of the curve and, and adding in some elements that I think right now the team is missing a little bit. And, and the big thing that I always think of with this is a little bit more of a collaborative style of play. So we have all these individual players who can dominate so thoroughly 1v1, but if a few are not having a good day, then, it, then you know, it creates a, a team situation. And luckily in this World Cup and what we've seen in recent times is that a lot of players have been on and have been in form, which is excellent. And not just speaking about the first 11, like I think we are, we're nearly 30 players deep in our country to who we could who we could put out there on the field at the top international stage and, and do a really good job but now can we add a little bit of the tactical sophistication that i think some of the other countries show because there are countries who can nearly compete with us and if we were to do an individual matchup of qualities in terms of strength speed skill all these things like there's no way they should be able to compete so what that shows me is you know i'm, I'm thinking right now just first thing that comes to my mind is a team like spain player for player there's no way it should have been such a hard game for the u.s against spain but spain had a, a really good game plan and was able to play a collective style that I think gave the U.S. a lot of trouble. And that, that was just one example. But we've seen over the years, now on occasion, teams are able to break the U.S. down through a little bit of um, nuance and, t and tactical sophistication. So 
can the U.S. continue that? Not that the, that the team is bad tactically or anything like that, but there, I would say that the U.S. is almost the very best in the world in every category, and that's the one that I would say probably the team is not the very best in the world at right now. So I think it's about continuing that progress and adding some nuance and sophistication to what's already a really, really impressive team. And that's a, that is a tough job to not change the things that don't need to be changed, but to be able to add on top of it is, um, you know, it's going to take a genius <laughs> to do it well. And ho hopefully we can find that person. Cause I think, you know, in some ways I think, uh, wow, that's so exciting. In other ways, I do not envy the person who comes into that role right now. <laughs> so, um, looking at the women's national team and the women, women's national team program, um, Bill Plaschke, uh, columnist, columnist for the LA Times, he um, wrote an article um, that was published on July the 13th of this year talking about um, Los Angeles Latina Club is trying to change the face of women's soccer. And in his column, he said that uh, that during a victory speech in New York City this this week, this is uh, you know back in July, um, U.S. star Megan Rapinoe said, we got white girls, black girls, and everything in between, end quote. And Bill Plaschke went on to say, actually, they don't. They, the team had five players of color, but no Latinas. The girls from downtown found it hard to relate to a group that doesn't look like them. Now, this is this is uh, his entire column looking at this club in L.A. that is is trying to create a home and and a development path for uh, Latina girls in um, L.A. When we look at the national team program and we're entering in a new chapter, a new phase, we got a new coach coming in. Um, how important is it with a with the changing demographics in our country, uh, as well as you know a lot of uh, Latinos uh, view football or soccer as as their number one sport of choice, um, as well. Looking at all these different factors, how important is it for us as a program to look to rectify that situation going forward? Oh, oh, it's vital. Um, I mean. Soccer in this country on the men's and women's side, and I would say even more so probably on the women's side, is quite primarily a rich white person's game. And, um, you know, there's no better way to put it. These are really affluent families. You know, I grew up um, thinking my family was poor, and we by no means are, because just because of the people I was surrounded by in the youth soccer scene. And, and the type of um, families who, you know, we would interact with on these away trips and the, the resources they had. And we, it's not, by the nature of how we've set up our youth system, it's not inclusive and it's not welcoming and it's not accessible to everyone. So I think there's no way for us to know the type of talent we have in communities who have not, who, who youth soccer has not been accessible to. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of the number of Latina players I've played with over the years and, you know, I can maybe count on one hand and it's, um, that's one of the strengths that we can leverage in our country potentially and that the diversity of, of cultures and of people and people who come from really deep, rich soccer cultures, like you pointed out, but right now we are just are not, um, the doors aren't open to them and it's not that it will 
nobody is um, actively keeping players out, but the system itself is keeping players out. And I think it's something really important to recognize, even with clubs where there are scholarship opportunities and players who maybe can't afford the tuition are still welcome to try out. Well, a lot of those players haven't got the individual coaching to get them ready for the tryouts and they can't um, afford to travel to the tournament. So even if they're to make the team, it, it poses other types of problems or even, you know, parents don't have the, the luxury to be driving their kids to practice every day. Maybe, maybe they're working or it's a single parent home. And this, this applies to, um, all races, genders, I think all situations in our country is that we've created a system that in its very nature is very exclusive. And so we're not, um, we're not benefiting from the talent that could be out there with players who just simply can't participate. So as a federation, to me, this is, this is, you know, there's a lot of the, a lot of things that I think the federation should be in the business of doing. There's a lot of things I think they should not be in the business of doing. One of the things I do think they need to be more uh, involved with is figuring out how to solve this issue. Um, you know, I, I think when we look at our country, when we look at uh, the, the amount of resources we have as a country and and we look at the diversity in this country, we should be trying to be proactive on creating pathways for players to participate. We've seen the numbers decline. Uh, the, the studies uh, continue to come out. Uh, 500,000 players over the last, I think, five years that U.S. soccer has uh, seen a, a decline in registrations. Um Obviously, that that even that number goes beyond um, specifically just a, you know a Latino Latina issue. Um, I think that's across the country, across the board, um, and and so I, I hope that that as a as a federation. Um, that they really start to to wrap their their heads and their hearts around figuring out a way to get more kids playing and get more access uh, to more families. Um, because, I, you know, when I look at the stage and, and I watch that women's national team celebrate and it was it was an amazing triumph. It was it was amazing to watch the world cup this summer um it, it did strike me that I, I i didn't see um you know what bill plashke was pointing out i didn't see any of that on on stage i didn't see see any latino uh, excuse me latina on stage uh you know celebrating holding that cup in her arms and what that could mean for for so many young girls around this country um and and so I think personally, like we've got to, as a federation, got to do a better job of, of trying to work with our member organizations and the clubs to figure out how to solve this. Um, because now's a really good time coming off the feder uh, the, the world cup, the federation's got, um, you know, this opportunity to hire a new coach and kind of, you know, use it as a, as an opportunity to say, Hey, not only are we bringing in a new coach, here's a new initiative. Here's what we can do to kind of, um, continue to, to, to grow and change the face of our program, et cetera. So, um, that's my hope at least. And, uh, and I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to share your thoughts and, and your insights, opinions, uh, hopes, wishes for the NWSL as well as our U S women's national team. Um, I always appreciate, uh, uh, having you on and, and, and having a chat with in uh, picking your brain about uh, about the game of soccer. So really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us today. 
Oh, my pleasure. I could talk about this stuff all day. And ho hopefully one day we listen back on this and can uh, enjoy the conversation and say, hey, yeah, it did pan out like we thought. So That's the <laughs> hope. Nice. And that's why we work every day trying to make that happen. So uh, I really do appreciate your time and, and spending time with us and uh, and look forward to uh, having you back on again soon. To, we'll find some other rabbit trail to go down and, and have a chat about. So, uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Gladly. Thank you. That is Yael Averbush West sharing her thoughts with us. I really, really appreciate her coming on and uh, sharing her insight into the game, especially women's soccer here in the U.S. We'll be right back after this. No one. No man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. So I'd, I'd really like to thank Yael for uh, spending some time with us today talking about women's soccer, um, the U.S. women's national team, um, and just her observations on the sport. I, I enjoy those those conversations. And, you know, getting back to, uh, to what we were talking about earlier in the show before um, we went to, uh, to, to break and to Yael, I was talking about, you know, where we are, leadership, federation, what are we doing? What are we, what are we, what are we doing in terms of leadership? How do we change things? And ultimately, I think what we have to understand is that if we are going to really change things, it's going to come from external force, external pressure. And, and, and we can tell that it's not going to come from within U.S. soccer. That's clear. We can we can see that by every decision they make. Uh, we can just, we can see that by how they react to situations like you know what what goes with the the legal cases and etc. And the fact of the the facts are when we look at everything, we can see that by the structure, the governance, the voting procedures, um, the the personnel, the the actual people filling certain positions. The Federation is not in a place that is friendly to reform or change or progress. It is, it is built to maintain status quo. And when you have a system like that, 
a, a very um, you know protected system so that that change is essentially um, locked out uh, of becoming reality by the way those aspects are in terms of the governance voting people personnel etc then the only way to change an organization like that is through outside force and I would say that the, that you, the U.S. Soccer Federation and the NCAA are very similar in a lot of ways. And in this new law in California, which we're going to get more into on tomorrow's show, um, I think is is you know an example of what kind of steps are going to have to be, be taken in order for. Um, progress to be made in this country and i think that what's what what those around the country who are hoping for a fair and equitable and equal opportunity and access uh type of of u.s soccer federation in order for that to happen i think what we're going to have to do is look to create um pressure from outside we have lawsuits that are already underway by the nasl the u.s women's national team and others uh, including hope solo but what we we've got to do is continue to work to create even more pressure and and one of the ways we can enforce change is by looking at different laws that we can enact Uh, And some of those laws can be within states. Others can be uh, on a national level, like reforms to the Ted Stevens Act. But doing that is going to give us a much quicker and greater opportunity to affect change that we all want to see in U.S. soccer. Thanks for watching today. As always, you can watch on Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. You can catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for watching. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.